0: Welcome to the Open Apple Podcast, where we celebrate the Apple II. Whether you're a longtime user, a nostalgic visitor, or a newcomer to the community, join us as we share news and memories of Steve Wozniak's most famous personal computer.
1: Welcome to Open Apple, the uh, Apple II podcast. This is show number 38 for August. 2014, and um, I guess before we before we really get into anything, this should be addressed. It's sort of a, an uncomfortable thing for me. And I, I last time I had recorded a couple of different introductions, and none of them really, none of them really felt right. You know, I, I would listen back, and it just didn't really seem like. And I don't know if maybe it was a too soon thing, or if it was something that I just wasn't. You know, I I, I couldn't. Express myself at the time, and I still seem to be having a little trouble with it. Um, Obviously, uh, if you paid attention to Open Apple News at all, you know that Ken has left the show. And I wasn't really sure how to bring it up uh, on the air and last last time I, I kind of ran out of time. I wanted to get the the audio from show number seven or show number thirty seven edited and, and up before Kansas fest and I kind of never was able to circle back and so we just sort of jumped into the interview with quinn and uh, so I, that sort of I, I think felt abrupt uh, to a couple of people uh, based on your feedback, and I apologize for that so I've been going back and forth trying to decide how to talk about it. And I guess really the thing to do is just sort of let Ken's email to me, uh, his resignation email, uh, uh, explain things. And there's nothing in this that I think is too personal. And he and I have kind of discussed this a little bit um, behind the scenes. And so I'm just going to read what he wrote to me and then we will leave it at that and move on. Uh, It says, um, Mike, I love our podcast. We have great on chemistry. The quality of the final product is impeccable and contributes something important to our community. Uh, Open Apple isn't just a fun show to listen to. It's become a necessary outlet and record for Apple II users, but the process has become more demanding, and lately I've found it interfering with my ability to enjoy other areas of my life given that cost i don't believe i can continue contributing to the show without negative long term repercussions therefore uh, it's therefore time that i resign as co-host of open apple i hope the show will continue and i'm willing to help identify and recruit a new co-host as well as provide the assets okay well um, then we get into sort of we get at that, that area and, and i'm happy to say that uh, the show is continuing and that's partially because of my new co-host quinn dunkey Woohoo! That's me. That's you, Quinn, and and the interview went really well that we did at number 37, and I got a lot of really, really great positive feedback about having you on, and I cornered you at Kansas Fest uh, like a trapped rat and, and said, you will do this. Actually, actually, what I said was, please, please, please come be my co-host, and you agreed.
0: Positive feedback. I don't know what show people were listening to, but uh, <laughs> maybe that was Open Commodore or something. I don't know. Oh, but, uh, no. Oh, zing. Uh you know and honestly I think I think all of Kansas Fest gets uh partial credit for my being here. Uh I had a a lot of people actually come up to me and ask if I was going to be co-hosting and uh whether my interview was a one-off thing or or what and uh, of course at the time it was a one-off thing. I have no podcasting experience as is probably obvious. Um but uh uh yeah, I'm 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 excited to be here and uh I'm sort of a uh, I guess, a born-again Apple II user. Uh, you know, I was from back in the day, but this is kind of, this Kansas Fest is kind of kicking off my reintegration into the community. So, uh, you know, and Ken is an awesome podcaster, and, you know, those are big shoes to fill. So I hope that I can uh, do a decent job here on the other end of this microphone.
1: Yeah, absolutely. And and before we move on, I just want to say that, you know, I, I did this show with Ken for three years, and and it was 90% uh, incredible, amazing, and fun And the other 10% is just kind of the stuff that happens between people when you have a long-term relationship like that. And Ken, we wish you well in the future and you're welcome to come back and and be a guest anytime. And oh, and that reminds me, Ken has since launched a couple of his own podcasts. He is doing uh, Polygamer, which is a show that takes a look at gender issues in gaming. If you haven't listened to that yet, I think he's done two or three and they're excellent. I, I highly recommend that.
0: Yeah, Polygamer is great. That's uh, really filling a void, I think, in in the industry. So I'm really happy Ken's doing that.
1: And he's also doing a, a podcast called Indie Cider about uh, indie independent game development. These both, I think, go hand in hand with his, um, with his YouTube channel, which I highly recommend you check out. He's, he's done a lot of really great videos there. Uh, those, those, I think, tend to focus more on modern gaming platforms and his interest in console gaming. Uh, but he's got a lot of really neat, creative stuff that I, I suggest you check out. So thank you, Ken. I've had a great three years, and I look forward to maybe collaborating with you in the future on something else. And in the meantime, Quinn, tell me about the time that you had at Kansas Fest.
0: Wow. Well, what a time it was! Uh, it was my first time. Uh, I was a Kansas Fest virgin, as it were. And uh, I guess I guess you get the blame for for <laughs> dragging me there. Uh, I think I got basically talked into it during our last interview. Um, oh,
1: good. Good. I'm glad I so, could I could manipulate you into that.
0: <laughs> yes, that's how easy I am to talk into things. So good thing we didn't do an interview about jumping off a bridge. or We oh, might geez, not be no, here to that, co-host. That's bad. But yeah, you know, I was right on the edge of wanting to go anyway. And you know, the hole opened up in my schedule. And so, yeah, it was pretty, I was, I was a pretty soft sell there. Uh, It was fantastic. You know, I wasn't sure what to expect going into it. It's a pretty unusual event, you know, Uh, just the length of it and the venue is unusual and the structure of it is kind of different. So I really wasn't sure what to expect. It doesn't have, it doesn't Feel Like a conference, you know, where you go to a hotel conference center and there's, you know, tracks and sessions and all that. It's, uh, feels a little more organic than that, but, uh, it was fantastic. And, uh, you know, I've literally already blocked out section of time for next year so awesome. uh, you can count on me being there uh, for sure it's uh it's just there's nothing else like it even if you're not an apple II user i think i think there's something there for for any kind of retro computing enthusiast it's just such an amazing group of people and the work that people are doing uh with the hardware mixing it with old hardware and mixing with you know the old stuff and the new stuff and connecting it to rockets and roller coasters and everything else uh so yeah i mean i saw stuff there you know i read the blogs and i listen to the podcasts i sort of felt like i had a sense of the apple II and retro computing communities in general but that didn't even come close to preparing me for the stuff that the dare i say magic that i saw at, at k fest so there's just no substitute for being there for sure
1: now, we, we talked extensively uh, during your guest shot uh, about Veronica, and you brought Veronica with you. And, and I remember distinctly you saying that this was the first time she'd really been off the test bench. How was that?
0: Yeah, that was great. Uh, in fact, you scooped me a little bit because I had this whole presentation uh, prepared, and uh, then the podcast came out th- <laughs> three days before, uh, before KFest. Uh, K- so, uh, uh, oh, first- I'm sorry. I didn't mean to step yeah. on you. <laughs> That's all right. No, no. Uh, so the first 10 minutes of my uh, my session were uh, kind of the same content, but uh, I don't think anybody minded. Uh, yeah, it was fun. Uh, as you say, I, I had literally never, Veronica had literally never set foot outside my house. So I had no idea how the boards would hold up. I didn't know if the connectors were solid. I didn't know if the case was going to stand up to, to travel. I didn't even have anything to, any way to carry it. It's a kind of a bulky thing. It's a weird size. It doesn't fit. I didn't fit in any of my luggage. So I had to figure (laughs) out how to physically get it to the show. Uh, What I ended up doing was going to Target with a tape measure and just measuring all of the bags and suitcases and backpacks and everything (laughs) that they sell. And I found one bag that was perfect. So luckily I had a way to get it there. And then, of course, you know, it was carry on. I, I wasn't letting it out of my sight. I literally had my hand on it for the entire trip. Uh, and uh, even then, I wasn't sure. I mean, I was pretty sure the X-ray at the airport wasn't going to hurt it. I don't know why it would, but you never know. Um, you know, I don't I don't have a ton of experience with hardware, so I wasn't sure. You know, is the EEPROM, the Eprom and the ROM going to stand up to that? And uh, you know, I've, there's a bunch of microcontrollers in there with internal flash memory. Are they going to get zapped? Just so I brought all the gear to reprogram everything, reflash everything, just in case everything got wiped. I didn't had no idea, so. Uh, Of course, all those fears were unfounded. I didn't know if the TSA was going to hassle me about it because, you know, it's a sketchy homemade box of electronics. Uh, (laughs) I'm sure I was figuring it would give someone a heart attack when they saw it on the x-ray. But, uh, you know, Tony Diaz had assured me that they're not even going to blink at it, and they didn't even blink at it. Uh, In fact, Jason Scott called it. He said, uh, yeah, they'll look at it, and they'll go, huh, and then they'll wipe the paper disc, bomb detector business on it and then they'll wave you through and that's literally exactly what happened. So I guess anything the least bit unusual, they just wipe it with their magic bomb detector thing and that's it. So uh, but yeah I made it to the show in one piece and it powered right up and it worked all week and I made it home the same way and uh, powered it up when I got it home and it still worked. So
1: that's always that's always a good thing when you plug it in and it comes back up the way it's supposed to. Because there's a, there's that that second or two where you you know, even even if you know for a fact that it's been through the detector you know, many times before, whether there's that, at least for me, there's that thing in the back of my head that says, this might not come back on this time.
0: Yeah, for sure. And I, you know, and I knew it's got some weaknesses as well physically. I mean, some of the boards, uh, you know, it's, there's a whole bunch of circuit boards in there that all Connect with board edge connectors, and some of them don't align quite right because I didn't get the scaling quite right on the solder masks. So you know, there's there's definitely some sketchiness in there, and I just I, you know I wasn't sure, having trucked it all the way across the country uh, through many many airports, if it was going to survive many many more airports than had uh, been planned for due to some snafus on the on the way there. But uh, yeah, it came through like
1: a champ. So great, that's great news. Now uh, Kansas Fest is is a, a conference or, or I maybe you know they, they maybe it's best described as as they do on their webpage it's you know summer camp for nerds and um, it's based almost entirely upon the the input of those who attend I mean we have a keynote speaker that kicks things off and sometimes that the keynote per, the keynotes uh, that speaker stays longer than other times but other than that it's it's basically all of the sessions and everything that's put on are, are, are by the attendees we don't bring in outside companies we don't really bring in outside vendors to to show us stuff and and so one of the greatest experiences is is being able to contribute and I, i've personally you know i've been going since 2005 and i found that the more i put into it the better time that i have now obviously you had you had a great session and there was the vendor fair was was there anything else that kind of really stood out in your mind as as like a, a great memory that you're going to have from your from your first kansas fest
0: Oh, boy. Um, Yeah, I mean, I think probably aside from getting to show Veronica to people, which was just a huge thrill for me because, you know, like I said to people in person at the show, where else am I going to find a room with 50 people in it that are totally going to get this? You know, I mean, the rest of my friends look at that thing and say, you know, you spent years building that? Why exactly? (laughs) I mean, it's, it's just impossible to explain to somebody who doesn't immediately get it. And everybody at the show looks at that and says, oh awesome you know they immediately get why someone would do something like that so that was that was the biggest thing but um yeah I mean the people were amazing we you know we talked about this in in the big group podcast that we did but you know these kinds of things are really about the people and I was just blown away by that the way the community came together to help each other out and uh you know I said in uh, I think I've said in other on other shows that uh, I'd been looking for an Apple II C plus, and you know, within hours of setting foot on the premises, one appeared in my hand, and you know, it just yeah, it was incredible. Uh, wow. So that was that was a big highlight for me to just sort of it was almost like a like a welcome back to the Apple II kind of thing, where you know I didn't have any Apple II hardware, but I was interested in getting back into the community, and I had all these ideas, and now suddenly I have the the means to execute on all these ideas. So uh, you know, it's just sort of giving me this this passion to kind of give back, you know. It sort of energized me to go and do all kinds of of cool things. I mean that that was one of the things that surprised me the most about K Fest was just how much energy I came home with. Uh, it was like a just a recharge, and not just for Apple Two stuff, but just in general. You know, it was. I just feel all kinds of uh, excitement to go and try all kinds of new things. So uh, that uh, that was a really pleasant surprise. I think.
1: Yeah, I, I find that when I go there, it's it's great because it, you, I basically got a week to just kind of immerse myself in 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 that sort of eight bit, you know, Apple II past for for a little while, and and from that I can sort of I can draw ideas for what I want to do for the future, and it's great because I'm around people who are a lot smarter than me, and or uh, who have solved similar problems or or overcome certain obstacles and and I've basically got almost 24 hours access to them to be able to ask them hey what do I do here and I've never found anybody that says no I'm not I'm not interested in helping you with this or or I don't want to you know every every time I've ever had any question about anything that I'm doing there people are are just willing to jump in and and pitch in and help out and that's open sharing community is is always very inspiring
0: for sure yeah and what's also interesting is how normally when you go to a big conference like that you come home and it's just sort of like a switch. You know, you're back to normal life and that's it. You know, it's like as soon as you set foot in your house, it's like a distant memory. And K-Fest is almost like a crossfade back into normal life (laughs) because, I mean, all week, it you know, the podcasts are coming out and people are writing articles and people are posting their code and sending out their photos on the mailing list and the conversations that we were all having continue on the mailing list. And so it's it's almost like part of me is still there, you know, and, you know, I look behind me and my shiny new Apple 2C Plus is sitting behind me looking all looking all inviting. And so, yeah, it's funny. There's a part of my brain maybe that's just now going to always be there. I don't know.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Well, I, I don't see that as a bad thing at all. Not at all. <laughs> uh, one of the one of the, the really neat sessions this year was a continuation of a session, that, uh, a demo that we saw last year. Martin Hay gave us sort of a, a a very early look at the technology behind a forthcoming game called Lawless Legends. It's a collaboration. Uh, primarily, I think it's between Martin Hay, uh, Brendan Robert, and Seth Sternberger of 8-Bit Weapon. And I know that uh, they've worked also with David Schmink and his plasma language. And there's, I mean, it's certainly not just those... Uh, three people, but they're kind of the core of the Lawless Legends team. There's, you know, a lot more people contributing. Um, and I, I think, I think it's a really neat thing that we were able to kind of wrangle all three of them together this evening. And they're going to, we're going to, I think we're going to forego most of the new stuff. You know, we talked about Kansas Fest and, and what's going on here at Open Apple, but, um, we're going to, Kind of skip ahead a little bit and just uh, we've got a, a round table actually with all three of them they're gonna sit down and and kind of tell us about their their philosophy behind the game and the decisions that they're making for for the programming and technology decisions and so uh, without further ado, why don't we just jump right into that Quinn
0: Yeah yeah I'm excited to have the guys here. it's gonna be great
1: Old or new, it's still
0: cool in retro views.
1: So Kansas Fest this year, we had a another presentation from Martin Hay about uh, Lawless Legends. Only this time, the technology has advanced quite a bit. Uh, the, the artwork was beautiful, and it looks like we're getting closer to a finished product. And so we thought it would be great to get everybody that's involved, uh, primarily involved with the game, together to talk about uh, talk about the progress and how things have gone, and, and kind of where we, where you guys hope uh, hope things. And uh, I guess we'll just start uh, one at a time. We'll go around the table here and uh, kind of introduce yourselves and sort of maybe a little bit about how you got involved with the Lawless Legends projects. And we'll start with, uh, since uh, Martin Hay was doing the, um, Martin Hay did the presentation at Kansas Fest. Martin, we'll start with you.
2: Okay. Um, I am actually the, uh, the last of the three people here to have joined the project um, I joined just over a year ago before the last Kansas Fest, and um, my idea was to come in and just just write a, a raycaster to do um, so you could wander through 3D environments. I thought that would be really neat to do. And, of course, I've ended up getting deeply involved in the project, and um, I have my hands on many pieces. Um, most recently, integrating work from uh, Dave Schmick. Who, I guess, I guess we should have invited him. But <laughs> anyway, um, <laughs> he uh, he's been uh, kind of peripherally involved, and he contributed um, a customized version of Plasma, which is his his language um, for for kind of a high level language for the Apple II. Uh, he contributed that to, to Lawless Legends, and I spent the last month or two um, integrating that. Into the whole system, so that's kind of what I've been working on in HL: Raycasting and Scripting.
1: Okay, next we have uh, Brendan Roberts.
3: Hey, can you hear me all right? Yes. Excellent. So I've been in uh, in this project for a little bit longer than Martin. I'd say probably about three months longer than Martin. Um, kind of started back when Seth put out a message. I believe it was on Facebook. I want to say it was on Facebook and was trying to recruit people to help him make a game. And I was the person who raised his hand and said, sure, what's it about? Um, And here we are. So, um, yeah, it's been uh, a really fun challenge to try to figure out how to design a game with more modern sensibilities that will run on old tech. And uh, Seth and I have had a lot of interesting conversations that led to um, the idea of creating an open source-based game so that we could attract other developers to um, to jump in. And um, and I think that it's worked pretty well. I think it's been a lot of interest generated just by the fact that everything we're doing, uh, everybody can contribute as much or as little as they want and have access to all the source code. Because as, as we know in the Apple II community, preservation of uh, software is a really big deal, and having access to the source code an even bigger deal, um, took a lot of inspiration. For example, Jordan Mechner releasing the source of Prince of Persia as an example there. So I started by creating the Outlaw Editor, and that was something that uh, Martin had demoed last year at Kansas Fest. And that uses the re- the video rendering of Jace, um, sort of in a redo format to edit graphics and tiles and whatnot. And I put that out there for Seth to um, to start playing with the graphics and try to get some ideas of how how things will work. And the idea of using an emulator uh, as a video sort of rendering engine for the editor is that uh, we really wanted to take advantage of as much of the bizarre idiosyncrasies of NTSC uh, color artifacts as we could. And you really can't get that when you're running an emulated screen. So. Yeah, you know, the Jace the Jace rendering is very much a simulated TSC, so much that the WAS uh, supposedly complimented it at uh, Kansas Fest last year. And so if the WAS says it, it was a really good attention to detail, I guess that meant it was pretty good. I wasn't there, so I, I don't know. But Barton says the WAS said something great, um and I'm deeply honored by that. Um so uh I think that Seth's graphics kinda speak for themselves, right? The other thing I contributed to this was a lot of the design ideas and integrating the Blockly script editor, uh, which is JavaScript based, with um, sort of marrying that up to the, the map editing so that we could, say, integrate maps uh, and scripts together very seamlessly. And that allows you know Seth, who is a non-programmer, to participate more in the game design and the scenario editing that would otherwise, if we were doing this whole thing in assembler, would be completely um, off limits to a non-programmer,
1: and what a what a great transition to our, our our third guest today. Now, now Martin and Brendan have been guests before on uh, Open Apple, but uh, Seth Sternberger is, is joining us tonight, and this is his first time on Open Apple. And you're also deeply involved in, in uh, Lawless Legends. Uh, Seth, introduce yourself, please. Hey,
4: everybody. I'm Seth Sternberger, and uh, I'm one half of the band Ape a Weapon. Which we actually use quite a bit of Apple II. In fact, we just did, uh, we shot live footage for PBS and half of the stuff we performed was on a 2C. Whoa. Uh, so. That's so cool. Yeah, using, uh, Mike, uh, Mahone's, uh, digital, uh, DMS synthesizer software, which is pretty interesting in its, uh, in a, of itself. But, uh, when it comes to Lawless Legends, um, probably, I would say close to 10 years ago, was when I really got a solid opportunity to really explore Apple II as a computer and as a gaming machine because I'd always wanted to play Interplay's Dragon Wars, which was designed and built for the Apple II, uh, and it ported very poorly to the Commodore 64, so much that I, I couldn't even get through it. I hated it so much. So with eBay, I was able to buy a 2C, very nice compact system, and by Dragon Wars for the 2C so I could experience it as it was intended. And I loved the experience so much that I also bought Wasteland for the Apple II, which I played a million times in the PC and Commodore 64, and also found the, the experience on the Apple II superior because it had really rich colors, and the drive speed was incredibly fast compared to the Commodore 64. After having those two amazing Apple experiences, of course I had to play Oregon Trail, but I found myself wishing that there was another role-playing game to play on the Apple II or even the Commodore 64, for that matter. But those days had pretty much passed. And so for the last 10 years, I always dreamed it would be great if somebody would just whip up a cool RPG, but it just wasn't happening. Uh And I would Google and, and look and whatnot. But around the end of 2011, maybe January of 2012, I thought, well... I know lots of people online that code in assembly for the Commodore 64. I'll ask some of these people if if they'd be interested in in putting a a new role-playing game together. And I got exactly one bite from a guy that promised he could code the whole thing in a year by himself. And then I know nothing about coding. So I assumed that that was possible. Well, after three months of of developing it with this guy. He eventually had to admit he knew nothing about programming and that he <laughs> simply wanted to be a part of it because he was a fan of ape of weapon. So, Aww. we got nothing out of that. So that's when I reached out to the entire 8-bit community uh, regardless of what platform. That's that was in I want to say March of 2013, and that's when I got in touch with Brendan. He volunteered and and that started a great relationship online and, and team. Uh, and then shortly thereafter, uh, I think Ken Gogney got Martin in touch with me because I asked Ken, hey, do you know any other coders? The, the really strange thing is there's a huge Commodore 64 coding community out there that is probably 10 to 1 of the Apple community. But all I got was negativity and sarcasm from the Commodore 64 community, with the exception of one guy that came later, and we'll talk about him. But pretty much everybody thought I was a joke, and the idea of making a new role-playing game for the Commodore 64, you would, you'd have to pay somebody serious cash to motivate someone to make a game of the scale of Lawless Legends. But when I got in touch with Brendan, he didn't think it was such a, a terrible task, and he liked the idea behind Lawless Legends, so he did lot, Editor, and we started doing graphics together, and then eventually Martin came on board, and I originally wanted to do Bard's Tale-type pre-rendered graphics, you know, hallway graf- graphics, and Martin's like, well, yeah, we could do that, but I mean, in the same amount of coding time, we could probably do a Raycaster, and that really kind of blew my mind. I didn't really know how to wrap my head around that, because that was just so much more than I had
3: asked for, and, you know? And admittedly, I, I'm just going to say right here that I had to eat a lot of crow on that one, because I didn't think that was doable. So, just throwing that out, there. Throwing that out <laughs> there.
0: I don't think a lot of us thought that was doable.
2: Sorry. <laughs>
4: <laughs> but uh Martin and I had a few serious talks because I wasn't sure I'd be able to get the definition because the way the, the Raycaster works, you have to use a few more pixels for it to show up at different distances. So, you kind of have to double up your pixels in some some places. So... I wasn't sure if we would get the detail I wanted, but we got the detail and more. I mean, I'm still blown away by all the advances we have, almost on a weekly basis, whether it's graphics, or sprites, or things that that we finally added to the Outlaw Editor, like scripts, or different tools in Outlaw. I mean, I tell the guys all the time, every... <laughs> the game gets better and better every single day, like... There's always some advancement that we're the one at least the three of us are working on separately that we talk to each other about and we send each each other like pictures and or YouTube videos and we're constantly inspiring each other and that goes for like David Schmeck and Anton and anybody else that's had their hands you know in the mix.
0: So can you give uh, sort of a view from 50,000 feet of Lawless Legends for, you know, some of, some of our listeners may not have heard of it or may have heard of it but don't know exactly what it is, you know, can you sort of talk about uh, what it is you're building in terms of a game and in terms of an engine and so on, just kind of kind of the high-level view?
3: Sure. You want, to, you want me to take this one, Seth, or do you want to take it? Yeah, that's fine. So there's Lawless Legends, the game, which uh, when it's done, oh god, I hope it's done soon, will be a playable by playable, I mean by floppy disk, hard drive, maybe even serial port on an old Apple II or also via emulator. And that will be a game that is set in the Wild West and there should be a nice rich sort of plot structure to it. One of our overall design philosophies is that if it doesn't help tell the story, it doesn't belong there. So we've been talking about you know, how do we play how do we let the player experience the game, go through the game and build their way up through the game without just succumbing to experience grinding? How do how do we let the player go through the game and experience the game without getting lost? But also not feeling like they're on rails. And I'm not gonna say it's a free like a sandboxy because you know, I learned lessons from the Fable series where they promised a lot and delivered a great game, but didn't deliver what they said they were gonna deliver the year before. So, you know, it is an an 8-bit game, but the NPCs should probably do more than just, say, two lines and then stand around, right? So stuff like that. The other part of what Lawless Legends consists of is the software technology, which allows it to be possible. So there is an entire game editor, the Outlaw Editor, which allows you to build uh, the graphics, the maps, everything that goes into the game, comes out of the editor. We save the data from the editor, run it through some conversion, and that builds a disk image. And that black box code that, that I just mentioned was done by Martin Hay. And then and then you get the game. So the other part of Outlaw is that it's object oriented in the sense that it's Java and everything else. And also that it's built around the idea of platform. So there's you know single high-res is a platform. Double Hi-Res is another platform. Commodore 64 can also be added as a platform. So there's nothing about the editor itself that is really centric around Apple II. And that was why we decided to pick a very sort of novel graphic, WYSIWYG script editor, which didn't tie itself to any particular language. And we also decided to let a tile be a tile and a map be a map. And how those things get rendered just depends on which platform you're in. Currently, that only consists of Apple II because we only have Apple II coders building the Apple II side of things, but we don't have to go rewrite the whole editor from scratch to support Atari or Commodore or whoever. I think that pretty much sums it up. Did I miss any big parts, guys?
2: I want to add one more thing, which is that... So Outlaw is kind of the the game editor. The whole engine that runs on the Apple II currently uh, is called Mythos, and that consists of, you know... Disk loading and uh, rendering everything on the screen, fonts and all that stuff. And eventually, hopefully, there will be Mythos for the C sixty four and Mythos for Atari, etc.
3: And a large part of Mythos is Plasma, which is which works on Apple one, Apple two, II, Apple three. So I don't think it's that big of a stretch to imagine that Plasma would be part of Mythos for every sixty five hundred two based platform.
0: So Mythos is. Uh... It's is it the actual engine or is it just is it just a layer that sits between Prodos and the game engine?
2: Uh, I guess it's both. Um, although we're not using very much of Prodos, we're pretty much using Prodos as a block device, right? And everything except reading blocks is Mythos.
3: Yeah, we really we really wanted it to be VS Drive compatible because nothing beats. You know, playing on the original hardware and maybe you don't have a hard drive, maybe your floppy drive is on the fritz or you can't find floppy disks, but you still want to play it on the original hardware, it'd be really great if we had enough room and and cycles left to support VS drive on the side. So we didn't want to rule ProDOS out and we also wanted it to be compatible with hard drives and 800k floppies and so on. So that's that's why ProDOS is there. A lot of people say, well, why is that? Well, we have ways of getting memory away from ProDOS, so we have evil tricks yes
0: so the, uh, so the uh, the, the, the cross platform goal is is pretty bold, and one of the uh, really interesting things about the engine you guys are building normally when you go cross platform you sort of incur some overhead. What kind of challenges are you guys facing to sort of keep that overhead from overwhelming such a you know a, a slow machine
2: I guess it's, it's half on Brendan's side and half on my side, so in outlaw there are there are hooks for adding graphic editors for other platforms. I don't think they're implemented, except with, with the exception of Double High Res, which is another Apple platform. On my side, Seth and I are constantly tweaking things. Um, you know, he'll say, how big can I make my graphics? And I'll say, well, here are the trade-offs. And so the you know, decisions about the resolution of textures, um, the resolution of images used, uh, the sizes of maps... Those are are being tailored to the Apple platform. I suspect they'll work well for other platforms, but you know, map size probably is not going to be a big deal. Those can be can be spooled off a disk when they're needed. But uh, texture sizes, if you're going to have to edit graphics specifically for the C64 anyway, well, you can make them an appropriate size for the C64. So, I don't actually think we're incurring very much overhead. The only downside there is. The longer we go without having some other platform in there, the harder it's going to be for somebody else to to catch up and get up to speed.
3: I completely, yeah, I completely agree. So, for C sixty four, I did some research and I looked at again. It goes back to Prince of Persia, one of my favorite games. There was a really wonderful port of Prince of Persia done to C sixty four by a fan, uh, not by it wasn't done by the original author or even by the by Brodabund, it was actually done by a fan who reverse engineered the Apple version. And in order to support uh, a game like Prince of Persia, which used every single bit of 128K on the Apple II, he targeted uh, a cartridge loader. So the cartridge actually sort of worked like aux memory and the Apple II does, as well as a, a disk at the same time. So he built it around that. And so I think when we talk about a game like this, which which really tries to push the Apple to its max in terms of storage and everything. Working in that into other platforms would definitely require not only a lot of compression tricks, which Martin has pulled off, but also um, supporting hardware like uh, cartridges for C64. I think the only one I don't know and understand well that worries me is the Atari platform, but it seems like there are some Atari coders out there that are still interested in the challenge. Um, Just none have stepped up yet. Uh, That being said, I think one of the things that Seth and I did, and I guess... You could say that we we would penalize ourselves later for it or shoot ourselves in the feet for it, but you know, I built uh, the Outlaw Editor around the idea of no limitation. Uh, let's build this thing out uh, in this really esoteric, uh, free-range sort of idea and see how many sprites do we use, how many tiles are we using, how big are the maps really going to be. Because when you're doing it in a high-level language on a modern PC, you don't really have what an 8-bit world would consider to be a limit. So... And it was a matter of just seeing, okay, well, how far are we really going to take it? And how do we really get that to fit into the smaller form factor? And it turns out that even with that that design ethos uh, in the beginning, it really hasn't come back to haunt us too much because the answer is really you could fit quite a, lit, uh, quite a bit uh, in 800 kilobytes. I think the only constraints are really just sort of the imagination. When you're pushed to work within a really small number of constraints, you actually discovered there's this really amazing source of creativity you didn't think you had. And I think that's one of the things that keeps drawing me back to the platform personally is that the machine isn't limited. Uh, my, the only thing that's limited is my creativity and what I can do with it. And that's why I still maintain an emulator for it. so why I still play with the games on it because some of those games are just more fun than the crap you buy today. <laughs>
0: <laughs> you'll, you'll get no argument in this room on that one, I think. so uh uh, you guys did a or i guess martin specifically did a a series of uh videos um uh, what was the name of it uh the the
2: The life of big blue the pixel big
0: blue yes the pixel so uh one of the things that so it's a great set of videos incidentally a really interesting uh sort of tour through the engine through the pipeline and uh, we'll link to those in the show notes something that i pulled out of that that was interesting sort of speaks to this is how you guys are kind of taking this approach of really pre-calculating everything you know you start with XML data coming out of the editor and you have this series of ever more clever tools that just kind of pre-computes everything down all the way down to the code so that the final code is just this massive series of, of unrolled loops and lookup tables and things. Do you see that approach mapping well to other platforms like the Commodore or Atari?
3: Definitely. Absolutely. I, I think that Martin and I took some cues from the Commodore 64 scene coders There were a few good, really awesome talks on the C64 scene of how how they pull off some of those really cool scrollers and stuff, and plasma routines and so on, and um, the unrolled loops tricks is like one of the number one in the book, along with self-modifying code, which we're not ashamed to admit we do that too.
2: Oh yeah, big time. It's also fun because we can take the modern platform and use it to full advantage, so some of those unrolled loops, well, a lot of those unrolled loops in the Raycaster, I I couldn't write them they're too complicated but I can write a python program that can write them. And so that's actually how a lot of that code is generated. And so it's fun using a modern platform to to produce code that would have been really really hard to write on the original platform.
0: Yeah that's that's a really excellent point. It seems like you guys are doing a lot of things like that that well, theoretically, this whole game is was possible in 1982 or something. It would have been practically impossible just because of the the limits of time and, and space and so on.
3: It, it would have had to have been built on a timeshare machine or something of that magnitude.
0: Yeah, like uh, like Infocom was doing. That was their big thing. Is they had a big uh, big mini computer that they did all their development on. So back to the engine for a second. Uh, what would you say is the most expensive part in it? Is that is, it's got to be the raycaster, or
2: the expensive in terms of uh, CPU? Yeah, the raycaster is very expensive in terms of CPU, and also in terms of memory. Actually, I I blew like thirteen K just on the unrolled loops.
3: Wow, <laughs> a lot. That's a lot of code. And plasma, the plasma runtime itself only uses four kilobytes which is just, I mean, David Schmink is just amazing. You can pull off a, an entire runtime for a language in 4K.
2: Yeah, it's nice. Another good thing about Plasma is it allows us to, um, to prototype in kind of a higher-level language, but then in the same source file, you can just start converting routines that are bottlenecks into direct, directly into assembly. So it's a, it's a really nice environment for prototyping and then optimizing.
3: And I think that you had pointed out to me, Martin, that it's also, uh, it also has more code density in terms of um, how much code you can get into a small space than assembly.
2: Yeah, so we can fit a lot of you know, combat drivers or store mechanics into the RAM that we have remaining because I dumped it all on the Raycaster.
3: Yep. So to give you an idea of what it looks like when the game is running, for example, the main loop would be controlled by a plasma program. That's compiled and running on the Plasma runtime, uh, much like you would run a game on AppleSoft Basic, right? And then anytime you have something really expensive like a raycaster routine, that's obviously the pure uh, assembler. And so you could think of it kind of like a, an an AppleSoft assembler combination, like what you type in from Nibble Magazine um, or something along those lines. And except we have Plasma, which is a lot tighter um, and a lot faster and uh, and much leaner to uh, to boot.
1: So you're saying that we should have had David Schmink join us as well
3: <laughs> I, I think that you should have a show just talking about plasma because plasma is just it, it's it's part of what we're doing with this, and it's definitely a big dra- driving force, but it's in and of itself a single utility uh language that you could build your own projects on there's you know it's it's completely you could think of it entirely separate terms as well. The other big piece of this, and this is something that I designed and Martin implemented, and I think that it was, was kind of a combination of Martin and David, is the memory management. I think that's something that we do here that I'm not going to say that wasn't done before on the platform because that's a little bit overly bold, but it certainly wasn't done quite uniquely as what we did. And that is we, we allocate memory in a very sort of free-form manner uh, in the game. This allows us to use every last scrap of memory that we can, and we just deallocate stuff as we no longer need it. But suppose you're walking around on a 2D map and you're allocating space and memory for you know, map tiles that you're loading in and so on. And say something has gone off the screen, it's no longer needed, we deallocate it. But maybe it's still there. Uh, the player walks back and we go to ask the memory manager, hey, we need to allocate space for this piece of the, the game again. And it might just realize, oh, I still have it. Uh, We haven't reclaimed that yet, and we just mark it as active again. So there's some really interesting sort of virtual memory management going on to um, let the game feel more fluid. And We really want to just take advantage of every last scrap of memory we have. The extended memory stuff hasn't been built out yet, but it's sort of in the design or in the skunk works, if you will. And um, the idea is that if you're walking around the map on a a 2GS or something that has a ton of memory in it, um, once the stuff's loaded from disk, it'll probably never never go back to disk again.
2: I should also point out that part of the memory manager's job is is allocating memory in the aux bank, the you know the alternate sixty four k that comes on a two e. And um, Dave added specifically for Lawless Legends the ability for Plasma to run its bytecode in that in that auxiliary memory, and that's really nice because main memory is super tight um, and we've got a lot more flexibility in that auxiliary bank. So it's great that we can put a bunch of code over there.
0: So I'm glad you guys brought up the memory management because that's really, uh, that's one of those kind of breaking points that really distinguishes, you know, modern software from vintage software, if you will. And, uh, is this something that you guys might be able to release at some point as as a binary that people could use? Because you know, memory management is a it's a complex and difficult topic and it's but it's so powerful when you have one that, that works.
2: It's an interesting question. It's a it's a pretty distinct module. It's the very first thing that loads, so it has dependencies on almost nothing else. So I guess it could be released alone.
3: You'll have to name it though. <laughs> <laughs> Um yeah, what to call it, the codex. I don't know. The other thing is that, you know, uh, the game has been built around the concept of using a memory manager. So it's not like you could just stick it as an appendage to AppleWorks or something, right? Or ClarisWorks or whatever you want to call it. But yeah, it certainly would be interesting you
2: know,
3: if if not novel to have some some sort of like a Z Basic with a uh, a better extended memory support because I know that Z Basic once you allocate enough strings that it just starts going into the uh the graphics area and stuff, so yeah, that'd be interesting well, and that was that was also the impetus of of doing this all in open source because we didn't want to make this some proprietary effort where you know suppose that we run out of steam, we only get you know three quarters of the way through it, and then we have the source code sitting on our hard drives and the guilt and shame of nobody being able to enjoy it. but where's the fun in that? So you know, should Martin and I win the lottery or fall off the face of the earth? You know, this thing is out there. You can download the source and pick it apart and reuse it. It's Apache license, so by that I mean you're not required to release derivative source codes. So it's not like GPL or LGPL where you're required to release any changes. It'd be nice if you fix some bugs you contribute them back. But, you know, if you find a use in some of this stuff, you could make your own stuff if if not commercial stuff based on it, because Apache license doesn't prohibit Commercial derivative.
4: That's part of the beauty of the the team is. I originally just wanted to make a game. I I had hadn't even thought as far as like what to do with the code and the tools, but Brendan and Martin both made a good point that like you know even if we finish the game or not, these tools will be out there, and other people will be able to make games that we can enjoy. It won't be a one way relationship.
0: So on that subject, can you guys talk a little bit about uh, the relationship? In terms of licensing between, uh, because Lawless Legends is intended to be a commercial product, is that right? So how does that relate to the open source aspects of it?
4: Well, I think the tools and the code for the engine and all that, I believe, is going to be, you know, free-for-all. It's really the content of the story of Lawless Legends that is
3: proprietary. Am I right, guys?
2: Yeah, and the graphics.
3: Yeah, exactly. Basically, the data is the proprietary part the entirety of the source is open.
2: Yeah. And we haven't written the combat engine yet and the store engine, but we're going to try to keep those... We're going to try to factor out the Lawless Legends-specific parts from the general parts. So there may be some proprietary code in that area, but I don't think it's going to be very much.
3: Yeah, and I think that it's, it's, it's very likely that a good chunk of the scripting and stuff will probably provide some examples because you really can't appreciate the editor without a good example so it's it's very likely that we'll have some sort of an example or a watered down set of stuff where you can at least look at how the scripts work together to build a battle engine but i mean what what fun is it giving people a battle engine and just having 20 derivative games with the same battle engine that's kind of boring right yeah well i think uh, martin
4: and i were talking that as tools get released we'll just make some little demo mini adventures to show off you know, you can have 2D adventures, you can have 3D adventures, you can have both 2D and 3D adventures like Lawless will have. There'll be, you know, script demos, all kinds of stuff. Anything that we use in the background of the show, there'll be a demo outside of Outlaw to demonstrate it. I mean, outside of Lawless Legends, there'll be some other demo adventure we'll put together.
3: Yeah, and I think that it's even possible to use the, the 2D map editor... um I'm still in the process of coding it, so I can't speak to how fast or slow it'll be, but it shouldn't be too slow uh, in terms of going across the map. But it should be possible to use even something as as simple as a tile map to represent a really large image that you draw in this map editor, but it's not a map. It's actually maybe a really gigantic image of some sort, and every tile is just a sprite that makes up that image. Oh, that'd be cool. So that you could actually, you know, have a program that scans across what's a map, uh, according to what we're calling it today, but it could just be a really big image. Think of um, the kind of the demo routines where you see them do like the mega zooms and stuff, right? I think there's a lot of potential for reuse and, and to have some fun with the code.
2: Also, the you know the development we're doing kind of around the edges of this is is going to benefit other people too, like. You know, Brendan's right on the edge of having this capability in Jace that I really want, where he can record the state of the machine on every cycle and then rewind that back in time. And I'm, I'm hoping to convince him to finish that before we need to playtest Law's Legends, because it'd be great to send people to, to Jace and say, okay, play the game there. And when it crashes, we can rewind their crash back in time to find out why it crashed.
3: Oh my gosh, I've been wanting to pick up Jace and finish so many things. And I know that there's some people out there that said, oh yeah, that emulator you wrote that you totally forgot about, you loser. Actually, what it is is, um, I have a lot of things for Lawless Legends that must be done in order for the team to succeed. And I've promised myself I will not touch the emulator until (laughs) until such time as we have what we need for the project. And so we still need our 2D and we still need some finishing touches and bugs fixed in the editor. I really can't touch Jace because then if I if I split my attention between two things, I'll just be so ADHD about it that everything will be done horribly wrong. Yeah, so there is that, and there's also some library management stuff that I might just scrap. Um, I liked it. It was kind of cool, but ultimately the usability of it was kind of so-so. Uh, there were some things about it I just didn't like, but the idea is that Jace would be not only just an emulator, but also a library manager, so you could drag things and um, and load things from online libraries and repositories and stuff, and it was a very bold idea, and it was three quarters done, but I just, I don't know, There's something about it that didn't work right. But to Martin's point, I, I think that I really do need to revisit the the save state. I know I can do it. The cheat engine that lets you teleport in, in Prince of Persia and so on uh, demonstrates that I know how to manipulate the state of a game without crashing. It's just something that goofs up whenever you try to rewind state. Um, and things get horribly out of whack, so I got to, still haven't found the bug. But it's mostly written.
2: Anyway, don't worry, you've got plenty of time, because we've got a long way to go on this scenario before it needs to be playtested.
3: <laughs> I, and speaking of playtesters, I actually have a friend who I will rename, she'll rename uh, Nameless, but she was a uh, tester at Interplay Games. Wow, Cool. Who is actually interested in, in demoing this thing and telling me what's wrong with it, like a good tester?
2: That
0: is actually massively valuable. I think a lot of people don't appreciate that QA is a skill, uh, and that it's how valuable it is to have somebody who understands, you know, getting the details right of repro stre- repro steps and you know what steps are likely to matter in reproducing the bug and which ones aren't and so on. That's yeah, it's incredibly valuable. So uh, yeah, and I'll, uh, I'll second Martin's uh, vote for rewinding time. I actually worked on an Xbox game that had that feature in the engine, and uh, it was massive. Uh, to be, we had the ability to replay uh, the, the entire game. Engine was deterministic, so with the same set of inputs, it would replay exactly the same every way, every time. And we actually used that in the QA process, and uh, wow. it was it was it was really really amazing. Um,
3: are you are you allowed to say the title?
0: Uh, yeah, it was a game called Full Spectrum Warrior uh, for Xbox. Oh wow. So, uh, we actually,
3: I remember that one.
0: yeah, so we actually used it for the networking, uh, engine as well. So that was how we did networking, was we just passed inputs back and forth. And so because the engine was 100% deterministic, uh, that was uh, all we needed to send over the network. And we didn't have to do any kind of prediction or anything. The phrase 100% deterministic is very easy to say, but, uh, there's very few <laughs> game engines that genuinely are. And that was, uh, really, really difficult to achieve, actually. But anyway, more to the
3: point. But- Sorry? That is impressive.
0: Yeah, you'd be amazed with the difference, how many uninitialized variables you have in your code and what a difference that actually makes in uh, how memory <laughs> looks after a few minutes.
3: Having worked on an emulator, I completely understand. <laughs> um, there's actually some titles on the Apple, I won't point fingers and say which MECC titles there are, oops, cats out of the bag, that don't initialize their memory state and um, they tend to crash if you don't initialize memory the same way that the Apple does, which is not all zero when you turn it on, by the way.
0: So let me rewind a bit with, with our engine. And uh, you guys touched on this a little bit earlier about the uh, the documentation. Uh, that's something that I really was impressed with so far, your efforts there. Can you talk a little bit about that? And I mean, as anyone who's written any kind of engine or, or shared library can can attest, that's that's almost as much work as writing the code, right?
3: Absolutely. So Seth and I started collaborating using Google Docs to work sort of in tandem to make sure that Seth can get his idea across so I have an idea of what sort of scope and what scale of a game he's going for. And also, so I have a way of getting down all of my design ideas uh, so Seth can see them and also so that whoever else joins the team has an idea of what they can pick up, from our Kanban con- board, so we have um, a Kanban board that has a bunch of tasks on it. People can just kind of pick them up and run with them. In the design doc, there's a whole section talking about the mythos, script editing, and then uh, the combat engine and a whole bunch of other stuff. We sort of want to break it on paper before we go to the bother of implementing it. Listing out, okay, I need these language features. Um, I need these commands at the very minimum. I need to be able to start music. And change music and I was like oh wait I need to be able to stop music too. I mean it's like so this c- continuous drafting process so that we have an idea of yes this is solid and here's the minimum set of what we need to at least get a vertical slice so we can play with this thing. It was really fun the the moment that Martin started uh, to review the documentation because he was reviewing it kind of while I was still revising and writing it so there's this entire section on Mythos where we were having a conversation and comments. He was highlighting stuff and commenting on it, and I was <laughs> responding in line. And it was, uh, it was, I guess, the full embodiment of a living document. <laughs> but uh, yeah, the Google Docs stuff's been a very valuable collaborative tool.
2: It's it's cool because I can go back and and read the conversation that we had about the text that's next to it. Which helps me remember. Oh, that's why we decided that.
4: With the whole game's main core plot, text has been written, and I, it was just finished like a month ago. And I had Martin go through it and find any incontinuity or anything that doesn't make sense. And uh, he was a trooper, and he read the pretty much the whole thing, I think, and found a, a bunch of holes that I had left gaping, and happily filled thereafter. But, uh, yeah, it's tremendous help for the three of us to communicate to go into the tech doc or the uh, the log book because there's going to be certain text that you have to read because it just, I don't know, we're not sure if we're going to fit all the text onto a disk or we'd much rather have a few more monster graphics than a little bit of text that you can read
3: <laughs> on, in a
4: log book. But anyhow, it's the Google Docs has been amazing. Like, I've got all the 3D and 2D maps. Mapped out in Google Docs and have been since for the most part converted into outlaw
2: and on the on the subject of documentation, I like the way this project is being run. you know Seth is bringing his experience of you know from aPE weapon, and he just is constantly communicating on a weekly basis with people who are interested you know so via the Facebook page, and so that keeps us it kind of keeps us honest in, in terms of we better be doing something every week, but it also keeps us honest in terms of, yeah, people are actually downloading this stuff, so there should be some documents so they know what, what's going on. And, you know, Big Blue the Pixel, um, we got some questions. Well, how does the Raycaster work? That doesn't seem possible. So that was kind of the answer to that question in the form of documentation and video.
3: And I think that there was even a, a, a very interesting, playful jab between myself and Burger Becky, and and she chided in saying, "Silly mortals, I invented this stuff," which I thought was just amazing that we got her to even give us any mention. <laughs> that was awesome. <laughs> it was hilarious. She's got such a great sense of humor, though.
0: So uh, that so the documentation is part of something else that I've been wondering about, and that's uh, I mean, do any any of you have? Uh, like game industry experience, because what what really sets Lawless Legends apart, I think, is this that the whole thing has this sort of triple A game engine sensibility about it. You know, you have the scripting engine, you have the tools, you have the platform independence. You know, you have the the, the sprite compiling and everything. I mean, it's all very triple A like, uh, but just sort of all compressed down into into eight bits, or so to speak. So, uh, I mean, where does all that come from?
3: I don't think that a triple A studio would do a title like this back then or today because they wouldn't view it as profitable. I mean, you have an A talent uh, coder like Martin and uh, B plus talent coder like myself, you know, spending a year of time on, you know, what, a demo so far? Um, so, you know, then they could have, in a studio, could have turned out three titles by now with lesser talent. Well, keep in mind that you're you're short selling
4: yourself short because n- none of us have this Lawless Legends as a full time job like they would. And I this think, true. given that, that the time true. that we've had, you two have basically been on for a year plus or minus. And uh, given what little time we've all spent on it in relationship to our actual day jobs, I think we've got
3: a plus output. There's some things that, because we don't come from the game industry, that I think that we've been able to bring in a different perspective, which is, you know, back when you made games on these old 8-bit platforms, you had a programmer, and sometimes the programmer was also the game designer, and I'm talking about like the David Cranes out there, or the Jordan Mechners, and so on. And you, you can't do that anymore. That the, the titles these days are too complicated for that. So to have just a small handful of people... Go in a room and come off and make a game. I mean you only see that with the indie gaming efforts. It's sort of a rare breed. I would have been a game programmer something that it was something I was very passionate about whenever I went off to college but then I saw what the industry was like at the time uh circa ninety eight ninety nine and I decided after seeing what it was doing to my friends that were in the industry that it just wasn't I wasn't a good fit for that because it was a very brutal industry to get into
0: oh it's it's still like that. <laughs>
3: I have a buddy who lives across the street who reminds me of that, who works on a lot of A you know a titles for Nintendo. Yeah, I get to hear a lot of his horror stories, and, and he's just amazed. He's like, why aren't you working for a game company? I was like, because if I told you how much did I make doing enterprise software, you'd hate me. There's a lot of things that I learned doing enterprise software that allowed me to explore things like Java and XML and all these other technologies that run, uh, like an Outlaw Editor, for example. And open source collaborative tools and all these other things that if I was an indie game developer, I probably wouldn't have discovered as much of. I mean, I I know about them, but I wouldn't have any reason to have learned them as much. And I think that some of that stuff allowed us to kind of rapidly assemble some of the support tools to make this possible. So kind of coming from outside sort of has some advantages, I think.
0: Uh, Let me jump in there real quick. You kind of hit on the heart of my question there, which is that... um, uh, like you say, back in the day, you would have Bill Budge just sit down and bang something out by himself, and he's not going to bother building a scripting language and an editors and a whole art pipeline. Uh, but that is something that every you know modern game does. And so, to hear that you guys don't come from that background is really interesting. It's almost like you sort of backed into a modern game engine uh, structure.
3: Well, we wanted to leverage the strengths of the team. I really wanted to be able to offer Seth the ability. To lend his creative input into how the game works, without having him to learn how to program, and I also wanted the game to not rule itself out from being cross-platform. So, in order for that to be possible, the game had to be written in a non-platform-specific language. There was just no way around it. And I had done, yeah, you know, I homeschooled my children, and I had taught them Scratch and Java and Groovy and stuff like that. So, I, I had. Reflected on what was the easiest thing for anybody to learn if they'd never programmed before, and Scratch was just super simple. You know, kind of harks back to the days of Logo, um, but even easier. You just drag and drop and snap your program together. It's, you know, it's a no-brainer. And so I was like, well, if I can do that, but for this game engine, then we got a surefire way to make this happen, so that Seth can have creative input, or whoever can have creative input uh alongside Seth and then I could focus on improving the editor for graphics Martin could focus on improving rendering and platform specific stuff and that was sort of how that came about I don't think we started with the idea of a script editor at first the idea started bubbling kind of bubbling up over time and I know that a lot of commercial games use lua and so on for the same reason
2: I just I couldn't believe it when when Brendan found this thing he had talked about, we should have some kind of visual scripting thing. And then he actually came up with one. And then he, like the next week, he dropped it into Outlaw, and it just blew our minds because I thought that it was going to take like a year of development just to do that.
3: It would have. It would have. If I had written it myself, it definitely would have. A big shout out to the Blockly uh, folks on Google Code because... I literally was able to take the Blockly source code, which is based out of JavaScript, and all I had to really do was figure out how to tie it into Java. And so Java and JavaScript aren't the same. I know that there's still that misnomer out there that they're related and they're not. We use Java effects for the editor, and in Java effects you have a web frame that you can actually stick, or web view I think is what it's called, but um, you can stick a web page with HTML5, CSS3, and modern JavaScript. And it will run in Java. It actually is kind of on par with, like, Firefox um, inside of Java. So whenever you open up the script editor, you're actually opening it up a web page that's on your hard drive, and it's loading JavaScript. But it saves itself as XML, and then that XML goes back to the Java, and then Java handles it as XML at that point. So it, uh, it wound up working out very, very well.
0: That's a that's a great example of what Martin was saying earlier, how you guys are able to leverage modern hardware to squeeze performance out of the machines because you wouldn't, you know, back in the day have been able to to use those kinds of tools for sure.
2: I have a kind of a personal answer to, to your question, which is you know, how did I get into this? I wrote several game engines when I was a teenager and in my early twenties. And so I love writing game engines, but I was always missing the person to write the scenario because I just suck at that. Brendan's notion of making this WYSIWYG editor that runs on your laptop, it, it's brilliant because it allows that kind of person, that kind of person we really need, which is Seth, to to come into this full force and um, implement his vision
3: When I was 15, I taught myself assembly after going through years and years of typing in things from Nibble and reading books on making games in assembly, Apple high-res games in assembly, and so on. And I finally sat down and in a one-week coding marathon made a tile engine, a graphics editor using low-res to edit the tiles. I even had a scrolling text window on the side, so it was very Ultima-esque. You could even hit the delete key, it would go to the full screen low res page and give you a bird's eye view of your whole map uh, for wherever you were. And it even had um, the idea of kind of overlapping segments of memory where you could actually go around a map that circled around itself but was bigger than what you could fit in memory at times. So when I was 15, I figured out how to do that, and it wasn't as smooth or as cool as Ultima, but... I mean, I was 15. I was pretty darn proud of it. And then I made a little example map, and I walked around it, and my little player was lonely and died of boredom because I had no idea what to do next. (laughs) And I think that was... uh, There was another time I made a game. I was going to make a game with a friend, and I wound up making this really cool pull-down menu routine when doing a pull-down menu routine was a really hard thing to do in BASIC. And it was so awesome, and it was so mouse-text-driven. It looked so neat. And I made this really cool main menu and no game.
2: <laughs> story of my life before now.
3: Yes, you, you kind of need, you need the strengths of different people to come together to make these things happen.
0: Yeah, I think that's, that's the story of many a young programmer's life, myself included. I think it's why there's so few successful indie game developers. is because it is very difficult to find all these various skills in one person and, and someone who has the, just the time to do it all.
3: Yeah, right. I think I have enough perspective now to where, if I really wanted to and I had the resources to, I could probably pull off an indie game of some sort. But I don't have the flexibility to do that. I don't, you know, I've got kids and you know all that stuff. So that's not on the that's not on the table right now. But it's it's a matter of telling a story, and it goes back down to the to the original ethos is if you can use it to tell a story. Then it has a place in there. Otherwise, if you're just doing it for the fun, that's not telling a story. That's that's fluff. You get rid of it, and that's the editorial. That editorial process is necessary to really make a high quality production. I think that some of the indie games that you really um, that that really speak volumes of what indie games are good at doing, like Braid, for example. You know, it's a really simple bare bones game. You know, there's not Anything other than just the raw mechanics to it. It doesn't get overly, fluffly, overly fluffy. But the uh, the fanciest part of it is the artwork. And the artwork is part of the story. It really is. And um, when you strip it down to its barest elements, um, I, I think that that's, that's where games should be. And you have a lot of AAA games that are just... They, they try to go do everything better than everyone else, and you wind up with these games that just have no soul. They're just boring. You just wander around to them, and you're like, okay, now what? The, the the player should never say, now what? I think if they're doing that, then you're not giving them a story to have fun with.
0: That's very true. Let me switch gears a little bit. I think, so based on conversations at Kansas Fest and so on, there was a lot of buzz about uh, about the Raycaster itself. Uh, I wonder if I could just go a little bit deeper on that. Do you, so do you guys have any sort of tools that you use for profiling that uh, to... You know, speed it up or at all, or did you just kind of write it and it was fast enough the first time, or how did you go about getting that to be, you know, an interactive frame rate?
2: I guess I ought to take that up. There has not been a lot of profiling. The core of the raycaster really is the 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 speed sensitive part is is scaling the graphics in real time, Um, and that's done in a column wise fashion, so it it blits a column at a time. And really, that whole process, getting that fast enough, came down to just figuring out, okay, how many pixels do we have and how many cycles can we spend on each one, and working backward from there and aiming for about 10 frames a second. I don't know if we're actually hitting 10 frames a second. We're, we're not really measuring the frame time. My Apple II doesn't even have a way to measure the frame time, but um, we mainly look at it, and if it feels like you hit a key and something happens before you get impatient for something to happen, then it's fast enough. And then at each step of the way, we kind of add things and it gets a little slower. So we added sprites and it got really slow. We're like, oh, crap. So we figured out kind of a workaround where I discovered that Raycaster was, you know, tracing past the edge of each tree to find the next tree and tracing past that tree to the next tree in the background. Well, you couldn't even see those trees in the background. So we came up with this notion of a blocker where if the Raycaster hits one of these special blocker sprites, it just stops there and it doesn't have to trace behind it. and that So that got our frame rate back up to interactive speed. But of course, we have ideas for lots of other things to add that may slow it down and we'll have to optimize, work around. The math component is the other thing that the Raycaster spends a fair amount of time doing. You know, there's just a lot of math involved figuring out what to draw where. I think it was Brendan. Somebody turned me on to using logarithms.
3: Right. Yeah, they'll the do the log tables.
2: division, and actually to do square root. Um, they're just fantastic.
3: Yeah, the log tables, and again, this, this goes back to um, things that we have learned from the demo scene. Yes.
2: And so the raycasts are just constantly changing things back and forth into log space. And and so the math is super fast currently.
3: Well, I think that's I like that. I'm glad that you brought that up. Um, so for anyone who's really old school, when you, when we're talking about log tables, think of like how you use a slide rule. Same thing applies. The same way you l- use a slide rule is what we're doing to cut down and make up for the fact that there is no multiplier or divide on 6502, but there is add and subtract. So by turning the multiply and divide into albeit very imprecise log lookups where you're losing a lot of precision, but the precision is good enough to um, still have a, a, a viewable graphic representation of what's going on. Um, so Martin converts the things into the logarithmic representations and then does add and subtract instead of multiply and divide and then converts them back to the, uh, the whole numbers again.
2: Now, all of that said, I see the errors. I look at those screens and I see jagged lines and they drive me nuts. But I just have to leave them be because because it would cost too many cycles to make them perfectly straight.
4: And no one's going to notice them like you do, you know?
2: So at some point I just had to say, okay, okay, stop. It's good enough.
3: I've been in the software industry long enough to say, hey, welcome to the software industry. We ship bugs. <laughs> <laughs> Any
0: sufficiently complex bug is indistinguishable from a feature, as we used to say. Exactly. <laughs> Don't make yes. a
4: rookie mistake of shipping without bugs.
0: So uh, uh, one of the things I really enjoyed about uh, the uh, the uh, the videos that you did, Martin, uh, was you sort of you went over the the raycaster a little bit. So now I didn't pause the video and look deep at the code, but um, if there's, do you have a sense? Is there is is it spending a lot of time in the actual raycasting in the the DDA part of it?
2: Um, it, it spends roughly twenty-five to thirty percent doing the ray casting, and the rest of the time is just blading pixels.
0: There's uh, there's some really interesting. Um, I don't know. Like I say, I don't know the exact EDA that's being used there, but uh, I'm assuming it's probably a standard Bresenham. Uh, there's some really interesting optimizations that you can do there if if you want to try squeezing some more cycles out of that. The one that Mm. uh one that I like is uh is a symmetric algorithm where you know someone people have observed that when you draw a Bresenham line you know on a pixel grid, you you get patterns. And so you can break up that line into you know three by three or four by four chunks and you'll always get, you know, each four by four let's say chunk will be one of sixteen or or eight uh patterns. And so you can identify those patterns ahead of time. And then the other observation is that the line is always symmetrical from one end to the other. So you only actually have to draw half the line. And then the other half of the line is just going to be a copy. So,
2: oh, wait a second. Uh, so if I draw if I draw the left-hand side of the ray, if I draw all the rays up to the middle of the screen, you're saying... The rays from there to the right-hand side of the screen are going to be mirroring exactly. Images.
0: Yeah, uh, I believe it's. Uh, oh, that's exciting! Yeah, the, uh, I think Graphics Gems one or two, I think, has a, a real nice breakdown of all the different uh, differential digital analysis algorithms uh, that that sort of ways to to beat Bresenham. Uh, so that that might
2: be worth worth taking a look wow. at. So, so here's the part where I confess that I don't understand three D graphics, and uh, essentially what I did was I found some C code online on a raycasting tutorial. I ported it to JavaScript so that I could run it easily in a browser. And then I just massaged that. First, I converted it to use integers, and then I converted it to use 8-bit integers. And then finally, I ported it to 6502. But um, I don't actually understand any of the math. Talking to somebody who understands that math, wow, that's exciting. <laughs>
0: well, the short version is that, yeah, Brisenham DDA is just a way to Trace a line through a grid, through a regular grid, that only boils down to adding and subtracting, um, without having to deal with, with yeah. floating point. But uh, honestly, no. But, I mean, back to your to what you said. I actually really like the way you did that. I mean, that was really clever. How you sort of shifted all of the hard part of the job onto the modern hardware, where you had lots of memory and good debuggers and so on. Uh, until you had it all the way down to something that was almost trivial, not that it was easy, but uh, to then move over to the 6502. Uh, I think that's one of of my favorite parts of this story.
2: That made me happy. So if you want to help me optimize this code, I am more than happy to accept. (laughs) I've said too much.
0: So, uh, so Mike, I feel like I'm stepping on all the questions here. Do you have any questions for the guys? Oh no, this
1: this has been really great. I, I've just been enjoying the the conversation here. The the question and answer flow has been uh, going really well so far. I'm, I'm pleased that we've gotten you involved in Lawless Legends.
0: <laughs> uh, that, that's not how I recall. I've already. <laughs>
2: <laughs> I've already been roped That's
0: into, into
3: OpenApple I'm not going to get roped into another project <laughs> see this is yeah. what they always say at first and then they look at the code and they say well I could just do this <laughs> one thing <laughs> hmm, well i just do the one thing I mean Antoine, Antoine's done a nice text routine for us and it's very cool but you know people are starting to clamor for where's the crack screen and I have to go ask the Dread Pirate logo to crack the game <laughs>
1: I did have a couple of questions for for Seth regarding. Uh, I, I know that the the main bulk of the storyline is coming from, from you, Seth. Are you also contributing the, the sound effects and the music? Is that going to be something that we'll we'll hear from you?
4: Yeah, I think I think the at least the majority of if we do get music on there, I think because I can't say it's like an eight-bit weapon game, but it, it's it's a team effort. But I think people would expect the music to be done by eight-bit weapon, but. We also have some other talented musicians in our team, so I think it would be uh, you know at least some collaboration, or at least some a few of the songs in the game. Like we don't even know if it's going to be a soundtrack like you'd find in Ultima, or just a title screen, with then atmospheric music and sounds throughout the rest of the game. But you know, I think some of the other team definitely want to take a crack at doing music, especially if we can uh, en- engineer a way to do uh, Mockingboard
3: music.
1: Ooh, that that'd be really neat.
3: Yeah, I don't. I don't really want to do PC speaker sound um, because, it, in order to make it sound good, you have to give up a lot of cycles and RAM, and it just you know it would com- it would conflict with their other goals. Um, I mean, basic little buzzers of sound effects would be fine, but um, I wouldn't want to do more than PC speaker for sound effects. Um, the mocking board side of things um, is something that Seth and I talked about from the very beginning. I still haven't made any effort on yet because it wasn't. It was sort of like a stretch goal. My involvement in that idea kind of dates back to two thousand five, two thousand six, where I wanted to make a Mockingboard tracker for the Apple II series, but I needed to first be able to emulate a Mockingboard to do that. And then I realized that my Mockingboard emulator wasn't working as well as I needed to, so I needed to debug it. And in order to do that, I really had to run actual sixty-five hundred two through it. So I made a CPU emulator, and then I needed to see what it was doing, so I wrote a video emulator. Then that whole thing turned into Jace, and I never finished the damn editor. <laughs> so I have a, a fully-fledged working Apple emulator with no music editor still. So once I get things along to where they need to be, it is something I want to pick up and revisit. There are some things that you can do with the mocking board. When you stop treating it like a square wave synthesizer and you start treating it like something that you can slam with lots of commands really quickly, and by that I mean I've I've listened to a lot of demo music from the Atari ST side of the house, which used a, a YM chip, which is basically the same as the AY, with just a slightly different envelope generator, and the Atari only had that three channel chip in it, and our mocking boards got two of those things and a speech chip. So if we can't best the Atari ST in terms of music quality, then I think we've missed a good opportunity. That is my eventual goal.
2: Now, you may have some help because I note that uh, Dave Schmick beat me for a mocking board at uh, K-Fest, and he took it home.
3: That's good. That's really good. And also, Tom Charlesworth, um, who I haven't spoken with in years, but he ported a Spectrum... Game, and I can't remember the name of the game, but he ported some music from a Spectrum game to test the mocking board emulation in Apple Win, and he pushed it to the limit. And I confirmed that Apple Win's mocking board emulation is top notch compared to the original hardware. And And by that, I mean Tom Charlesworth's uh, uh, spec-y, um game conversion is probably the most complicated mocking board tune I've heard, where it's actually pushing a lot of registers around. Much more so than Ultima Five, where it's only updating the registers at the end of a timer interval and it's like just long quarter notes and so on, but i'm talking like you know rapid arpeggios and other stuff that you only hear in demo scene music, and I really would like to hear more of that because I think it's a very unexplored side of our platform
0: plus as uh, you know as Seth pointed out at the top of the segment was we all know the Apple II is you know the, a vastly superior experience to a commodore sixty four so we need to make sure that uh, they don't get to play the SID card, which is the one that always comes out sooner or later.
3: <laughs> oh, I have a lot of respect for SID. And after all, just because we're Apple snobs doesn't mean that we should talk about SID. Because you have to remember, the person that designed the SID was also the same person that designed the dock that's in the GS. So you got to give the SID some more. <laughs> I'm just jealous. Would it be totally <laughs> offensive if
4: someone created a card to go in the Apple II that had a SID chip for sound?
0: Well, it's funny you should mention that. There actually was a prototype of exactly that at Kansas Fest this year.
2: Oh wow! There really? was. It was hand built. Yeah,
0: and uh, wow. I don't know if we should talk about it too much because I know they're actually planning to develop it. I believe they're planning to develop it into a product. So I don't want to uh, uh, go too far on that. But uh, yeah, I happened to be next to him at the uh, at the vendor fair, and it was it was great work. Really, really it, awesome. If wow. that
4: happens, that will trump any anything the Commodore could possibly have over the Apple II because. For the, the Commodore drives are so slow compared to the Apple II. When I finally switched to Apple II for gaming, it blew my mind how fast the games were.
3: It's funny you say that. Whenever I got a Commodore 64 a couple of years ago and I started trying to load some games off of it, I thought there was something seriously wrong with the damn thing. Well, there is. <laughs> the uh, The engineers were told they had to make it backwards compatible for the VIC-20. <laughs> Even but even with even with fast loaders it's still slow.
2: But a cartridge game is going to be fast, right?
3: Oh sure, it's direct memory. So and that's yeah, and that's, yeah so circling back on that point, if if we're successful at getting a C64 port, which we haven't really talked about Seth, did you want to bring up uh any news on the C64? I know that we haven't had any updates in a long time, but we haven't talked about it much publicly. Yeah, there's not a really a whole lot to talk about
4: really.
2: We do. We do have a guy who's working on it, but he hasn't gotten that far yet.
4: Yeah, but at least he's working on it. And he
2: actually knows how to program. And
4: he doesn't have an ego, which is hard to find in the Commodore coding
3: scene. Yeah, we've only had a, we've only had a couple roundtables with him, but he's a. Uh... He was a lot of fun.
0: And Commodore users can send their hate mail to, to Mike McGinnis. That's, uh, <laughs> That's to right. <laughs> yes, I,
1: I, my, my other podcast, they've nicknamed me Hate Sponge, so just go yes. ahead.
0: Mike Hate Sponge McGinnis. Because <laughs> we will get hate mail from the Commodore users <laughs> for this right. conversation.
4: Well, they have themselves to hate because we went to them first and they laughed at us. So,
2: But we are ready. We are ready for more of them to join us.
3: Yeah, absolutely. No hard feelings. Yeah, I'm I'm totally, um, I'm ready to coordinate with a larger team of people to expand other platforms. Uh, the Outlaw Editor's ready for it, uh, the team's ready for it, and we have the support structures in place to, to handle it. You know, we're using GitHub for source, we have a Kanban board that's running, uh, that's running on a very, very big enterprise scale website, and, you know, we have Google Doc, so I'm pretty sure that the Google Doc can handle more people browsing it at the same time. So we have everything we need to scale out to a larger team on the tech side. I think the only thing that's missing is the human element. And uh, I'm all for it. You know, I'd totally love to see every bit get in on this one.
1: So looking forward now, um, obviously a lot of progress has been made since since last year. And it's been really great to kind of see that and especially catch up at Kansas Fest. And I know it's... uh, unreasonable and, and silly to say when is this coming out, but what are your major goals down the road? What are the next steps for you in, in developing?
4: Well, I think we're like 50% there as, as far as components of the game. We've got the memory manager, we've got the raycaster, we're very close to the 2D engine, which from what I understand is pretty straightforward at this point. But then we've got, and you guys can fill in the blanks too, We we still have to do character data management items, uh, monsters, the combat system, I believe we're going to formulate as a script. What else do we need?
3: So we need sort of global script support. Right now we have scripts that are tied to the individual maps. And what we need is the, the editing experience and sort of the back-end management of having sort of scripts that live in a more global space I think that there's no issue of getting plasma to support it. It's just a matter of us having our build scripts or um, arrange things in a way that makes sense. And then I think uh, beyond that, we just have like you know bugs, bugs, and more bugs. There's a whole bug parade of things that Seth is constantly working around mm-hmm. in the uh, the outlaw editor, and he's been really patient with some of those bugs. But I have uh, the steadiest mouse hand in the west.
2: It is yeah. amazing.
3: He's been waiting six months for me to build a zoom in. Ability, so he can actually draw per pixel. And so he's actually moving his mouse with pixel accuracy. I mean, the guy is just amazing. He should have been a surgeon.
2: And I think we've got uh, sound to go. Yes. And I, I think Outlaw, there's not a lot left to, to add to Outlaw.
3: Yeah, I think that really the most of the tech that we need is almost there. I'm just I want to get some of these big bugs out of the way so that Seth and Martin say, "Hey man, that's good enough. We got what we need here. Now go do something fun." And then that'll that'll turn me loose on working on Jace, making Jason do a testing engine for this thing, working on the sound engine, which would be a nice stretch goal. Um all kinds of just what else can we throw at this thing at that point?
1: Well, I can't wait to to throw my money at you guys and say, "Give me a copy of that game."
0: Seriously, shut, shut <laughs> up and take my money.
1: Exactly.
3: Yeah. <laughs> we 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 decided not to talk about money. I think I think the way that Seth and I looked at it, and Seth's argument was wrong, is that if we start talking about money, things just get weird. And I don't even think we've even answered that among ourselves. Is what happens whenever we start charging for it? But then what? How does that affect the team? But um, I have no I idea. We, we still have to answer that question for ourselves before we even start telling people what we're going to do.
4: And that's actually one of the big biggest things we have in common is it is a purely a passion project for all of us involved. And so that's why kind of money has been, always been put to the back burner. You know, we we want a game, first and foremost, that we would all like to play. We may even still put it out for free. You know, I have no qualms with doing that personally still at this point. But we just,
3: I think all of us want to see this finished. You know, there's been lots of ideas, none of them none of them committed to at this point. Based on some of the feedback from Kansas Fest, um, some people are asking for some very interesting things. Like, you know, is it going to come with a gold coin? Is it going to come with a cloth map? And I'm like, yeah, these are interesting ideas, right? Um, yeah. I wouldn't want to commit to anything like that unless I knew that we could deliver a quality game that's worth playing to go with it. Because if you have all packaging and then a shabby product, what's the point? You know, we'll consider that once we think we have something that we can really stand behind. But I don't think that we don't want to make things too weird or too pressured because there's a money motive. It just That just makes it too corporate and soulless. <laughs>
0: Well, the, uh, let me say that the the passion you know that you guys are putting into it definitely shows. You know, I mean, it, it definitely feels like a labor of love, and uh, I think that's that's great for the product. And you know, don't don't sell yourself short on the schedule. Uh, I mean, you guys have been at this for a year, is that right, give or take?
4: Yeah, I think the coding's been going for a year. I've been developing it on paper since uh, the January of 2012.
0: Yeah, I mean, a tri- typical AAA game these days is, you know, anywhere from two to five years for, you know, 20 to 30 programmers. So, I mean, what you guys have accomplished in a year is is really remarkable.
2: It's a good point. It is a labor of love. It feels it feels to me, you know, like this is my fun project. This is what I do when I when I want to relax.
3: Yeah, it's not like work when I'm working on it. Me too, man. There's like... In, in my day to day stuff, there's a lot of brain drain. That um, things that you have to do when you're working on web pages for a living, that it's just you're pushing strings around, and some of that can be challenging, and some of it's very monotonous. And this is a again pushing the creativity envelope in ways that I, I can't do on my day to day stuff. So it uh, it keeps keeps bringing back the fun. Well,
0: As long as you guys are having fun, I think it, it definitely shows in the product. You know, as soon as you stop having fun, we'll know yeah <laughs> yeah
1: well guys, thanks for joining us tonight and uh giving us a, an update and we can't wait to see the final product and maybe do some play testing in jace and uh when, did you have any anything last minute that you wanted to ask
2: or add?
0: uh no, no, it's been great talking to you guys and we really appreciate appreciate you making the time for us tonight. and well,
4: thanks for having us. yeah
0: thank
2: yeah, you it's been a huge pleasure I, and I think I learned some stuff too, so I'm very happy.
1: Well, we'll uh talk to you soon guys.
0: Making more editing work for yourself.
1: That's right. Yeah, it's
0: dead air. It's,
1: uh, <laughs> compelling stuff. Radio gold here, folks. That's right. Radio <laughs> gold. Yeah.